Welcome, welcome on this absolutely amazing day here. We've had some rain, but the sun has come out and the flowers are blooming. And we are celebrating the first transmission of the Dharma. Actually, it is the, it's not the first transmission. It's the first transmission of a certain kind of Dharma. We call it Zen. It's a teaching beyond words and scriptures as we read in our reading this morning. So this transmission through the flower is a, not an, an, an ordinary sermon. It's called the flower sermon. And we associate sermons with speech, right? Someone offers a priest or a minister or a rabbi or usually a Christian sermon uh, is about a part of the Bible uh, teaching uh, that is explained, is in, uh, interpreted, and it's done through, through words. And it's often understood mentally, intellectually, uh, not totally, but because sermons are also inspirational, and so we can respond to them uh, emotionally. But this sermon was not about flowers. <laughs> it wasn't about flowers. It was a flower. There were no words connected with this sermon. So it really expresses the spirit of our practice, which is about our lives, the way, the way we live our lives. Not what we say, not what we preach, not what we impress people with, not intellectual. It's the way we are, much like a flower speaks by the way it is. And we communicate, we speak the way we are. So this flower sermon was really the birth of Zen. And as Buddha said, I possess the true Dharma eye, the marvelous mind of nirvana, the true form of the formless, the subtle Dharma gate that does not rest on words or letters, but is a special transmission outside of scriptures. And then he says, this I entrust to Mahakasyapa, this person. Buddha has, in conjunction with this pronouncement, has said, 
Whatever can be said, I have said to everyone. After he gives this sermon late in his life, late in his teaching, I've said whatever can be said. What cannot be said, I give to you. I give to you. What a great gift. What cannot be said, this great mystery, this great profundity that is beyond words and scriptures, I give to you. You know, I, this is often seen as a legend, as uh, people argue, did this really happen? There's a lot of, a lot of stories about Buddha and his adventures <laughs> that are questioned. And people say, this is, this couldn't, Buddha, you know, steps after his birth and lotus flowers appear under his feet. It's ridiculous. Um, similarly, this, this really didn't happen. Well, who cares? I imagine this beautiful scene at Vulture Peak. By the way, nothing like the Dharma transmission or teachings that we have here. This, all of Buddha's teachings were outdoors. He was a peripatetic. He traveled the, the lands of India. And it was known when he was going to give a talk. And people just gathered, all kinds of people, nuns, monks, lay people, devas, <laughs> spirits, uh, bodhisattvas. Who knows who's out there, what's out there, right? That's why we light incense. All the spirits. That's why we put out these little scraps of food. Come on, spirits. Come on, Davis. Come on, join us. And so there he is. By the way, Vulture Peak is not, as you can imagine, you know, this huge peak. It's this little hill, like Pennsylvania. You know, we don't have, we don't have really peaks. We have hills, right? And this was a, was a very modest, very uh, friendly place. And he sits on a rock and people come on. And expecting, you know, Buddha gave these amazing sermons, talks, discourses. And, of course, they were never recorded like this. So Ananda, his sidekick... His guy, guy Friday, had a tremendous memory, and he had to remember all of this uh, and transcribe it later, later on. So, you know, who knows what Buddha really said? But again, who cares? You know, we got we have these amazing teachings. There's a Buddha. We we need to ascribe it to someone. And so. Everybody's gathered and waiting anxiously, and Buddha is mature in his life and his practice. And, oh, he's going to have amazing, something amazing to say, right? And he's just quiet. 
Remember Ongo? What's going on? And so Buddha, there's a little, I'm assuming, little pond, um, and he plucks out a flower. Some people say it's a lotus. Actually, the Udambara flower is considered a blue lotus. A blue lotus, some people think of as a white lotus. Use use your imagination. Buddha picks, picks up this flower and just holds it up. And among all this multitude, he spots a Mahakasyapa. And a Mahakasyapa is very old uh, and wrinkled. So he's very, he's really distinctive in his look, his looks. <clears throat> and very, very if, you, if you see images of him, uh, he's, his face looks like a dried apple. Um, and so he's quite noticeable. So Buddha's, you know, and there's Mahakasyapa smiling. Aha. <laughs> okay. You're the, I give you this gift. Just like that. And you know so many stories of moments of awakening and meeting of minds and hearts are... Just like that, a pebble drops, boom. You know, uh, a finger goes up, boom. You hear? We hear. We heard less the other night. Did you hear the whippoorwill? You hear suddenly the whippoorwill is singing, boom. Someone shouts, <laughs> and. Suddenly you wake. So there's so many. These, this is beyond words. This is beyond words. Last night, I'm going, walking back to the house, and this one is standing in the, in the path waiting for me. And I arrive, and she goes, I'm looking. And there's a little frog. She smiles, I smile, the frog sermon, you know, just like that. It was that moment of meeting, look, couldn't hold up the frog, (laughs) or I guess you could have held up the frog, but you just basically, this happens all the time, look, here, here, touch, Deep communication. Most of our sermons, our communication is what we call discursive. You know, it's, we're jabbering away, um, and usually we're trying to understand each other. Sometimes there's miscommunication. We try to solve, resolve our miscommunications, we explain ourselves, we justify ourselves, you know, we're, we're working with concepts, with the mind. And then there is a communication which sometimes is called presentational. 
like here. <laughs> Take this. I'm presenting this to you. I'm presenting you a flower. I'm presenting you a smile. I'm presenting you with a smile. I'm presenting you with a bow. I noticed uh, Charlo was coming, coming in and Kirsten met, met her outside. Bow, presenting. This is not, hello, Charla, how are you? What's, what's up? You know, nice day, isn't it? It's, yes, I'm here, Charla. Charla is here. Presentational. It's not, it's right there. This is Zen. Right there. Now, here. So why a flower? Why not one of his sandals? I know Ronan's going to ask. Why not a rock? (laughs) Why not a mushroom? (laughs) Why a flower? Well, maybe this guy, uh, Eckhart Tolle, has possible understanding of this. This is a better book uh, than his first one. Earth, 140 million years ago, one morning, just after sunrise, the first flower ever to appear on the planet opens up to receive the rays of the sun. Prior to this momentous event that heralds an evolutionary transformation in the life of plants, the planet had already been covered in vegetation for millions of years. The first flower probably did not survive for long and flowers must have remained rare and isolated phenomena, since conditions were most likely not yet favorable for a widespread flowering to occur. One day, however, a critical threshold was reached, and suddenly there would have been an explosion of color and scent all over the planet, if a perceiving consciousness had been there to witness it. So he's also imagining this. Much later, those delicate and fragrant beings we call flowers would come to play an essential part in the evolution of consciousness of another species humans would increasingly be drawn to and fascinated by them. As the consciousness of human beings developed, flowers were most likely the first thing they came to value that had no utilitarian purpose for them. That is to say, was not linked in some way to survival. 
They provided inspiration to countless artists, poets, and mystics. Jesus tells us to contemplate the flowers and learn from them how to live. The Buddha is said to have given a silent sermon once during which he held up a flower and gazed at it. After a while, one of those present, a monk called Mahakasyapa, began to smile. He is said to have been the only one who had understood the sermon. According to legend, that smile, that is to say, realization, was handed down by 28 successive masters and much later became the origin of Zen. So contemplate our relationship with flowers. They really have no utilitarian purpose, do they? Much like our practice, we don't have a goal. We don't have what we call a gaining idea. We're not doing it for some other end. We just naturally gravitate to flowers. If we see a flower over there, if we are sensitive, we tend to gravitate toward it, to look at it, to smell it, to touch it. Flowers invite us to be engaged with them just because they're flowers. They're beautiful. They're special. They're a special kind of being that we can't necessarily use for any, any particular purpose. So we move toward them we bend over them. We smell them. We hold them. We make bouquets out of them. We arrange them. We offer them as gifts. We go to dinner. This is more European, perhaps, than American. We bring flowers. We bring flowers. It's just a pure gift of gratitude. Of We care for them. We sometimes preserve them. We dry them, right? We give them to people who are not well, who are sick. You know, we go to the hospital or somebody is ill. We, we put flowers by their bedside. Right? And we bring them to celebrations. You know, we have a wonderful dinner. Uh, 
birthday, we bring flowers, put flowers all over the place. We adorn ourselves with flowers. We wear them. We make corsages out of them. We make, you know, even a buttonaire, you know. For men, you know, wear a flower. Put them on our ears. Not in our ears, but on our ears. <laughs> Maybe some people put them in, in their ears. And we eat them. Just had some delicious nasturtiums the other day. And violets we eat, you know. Even, we you know, we drink them too. And tea, chamomile, um, rose petals. Man, flowers are really an important part of our lives. But in what way? We somehow love flowers. <laughs> um, and I'm using this word, sacralize. They somehow make our lives sacred. They add some kind of, tr they transform our experience in some way. When we have flowers on our table, our dinner seems extra special. You know, if we have flowers by our bedside, or if we offer <laughs> flowers, there's something uplifting about that. Just because they are a pure gift, they're just pure beauty. Like our practice. They're just purely beautiful. The great gate of peace and joy. Right? So maybe we have a sense of why Buddha held up the flower, the Dharma, this beautiful unfolding flower of teaching that comes, if it's a lotus, comes out of the mud. No mud, no lotus here. So if you were in the audience that day, I think it was early evening actually, what would you have done? smiling already. Oh, you would have stroked your beard. <laughs> I know if I were in the audience, I would probably have gone, what the heck is he doing? Why is he holding up a flower? Why isn't he giving a sermon? What am I supposed to make of this? Ah, the discursive mind would kick in. I came here for a sermon. What's going on here? What if no one smiled? What if everyone smiled? What if no flowers were growing? What if Maha Kasyapa just took the flower from Buddha? Threw it away. 
what if? What if the scenario were... Now I'm thinking about... I don't know how many of you have seen the, the film Taxi Driver. Well, there's a line in there where I think it's the, um, the main character. Someone is looking at him and he says, Who are you looking at? Who, you know, what are you looking at? Something like that. Am I right? If you're somebody has seen it. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, what if, what if either Maha Kasyapa said, what the heck are you doing? Or Buddha said, who are you smiling at? What are you smiling at me for? And sometimes someone will be smiling at you and you'll think, None of, that's all discursive stuff. So the fact that Buddha held up a flower and Mahakasyapa smiled could have gone a lot of different ways. So now I want to turn from the the flower to the smile. What was that smile? You know, there are lots of different kinds of smiles, right? Was it a smile of friendliness? a smile of nervousness? Was it a smile of politeness? Just kind of imagine what this smile must have been. Was it a smile of confusion? Sometimes they say... When an infant is, looks like it's smiling, right? I say, oh, that baby's smiling. I say, no, it's just gas. <laughs> <laughs> so, was Kastiapa's smile just gas? <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine what kind of smile this was that so moved Buddha. It must have been, it must have been a really special smile. It's supposedly a smile of just pure, whatever that means. I mean, it's none of these interpretive, you know, you really can't interpret it. All Buddha knew was, yeah, he gets it. He's ready. He's ripe. It's the smile, you might say, of of ripeness. You know, you could say when a fruit becomes ripe, it smiles. When a flower becomes ripe, it blooms. When we become ripe, our smile is radiant. 
It's joyful. It's, 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 it's a pure smile. I doubt whether Maha Kasyapa understood anything. It's like Buddha's teaching and Maha Kasyapa says, oh, I understand, I understand that. And Buddha says, okay, here, you get a stick. You get a robe. You get, because you understand what I've been saying all these years. Mm-mm. I do not think that that was what was going on. And I doubt whether this transmission was not a conferring of any kind of authority on Mahakasyapa. It's not like you're better than everybody else or you're in a higher state than anybody else. It was just a gift that was mutually recognized. Why did Buddha hold up anything? Why couldn't he just have approached the assembly and just kind of stood there waiting for someone to do something, to smile, to shout, to bow, I'm going to offer, and we've been talking a lot about boundaries, and I've been advocating a way of looking at boundaries, not so much as separating lines of separation, occasions of separation, but as places to meet. Boundaries are places to meet. And I'm going to offer that Buddha, this flower that he offered, was a place to meet. If he didn't offer anything, he would not have created a place to meet. So it wasn't personal. It wasn't show me anything, be some, tell me something. It's here, here is a place to meet me. And much as a flower draws us to it in the same way that the Dharma draws us to it, this fire, this this spark in us that is drawn to the Dharma, the flower, the Dharma is a place of meeting. You could have seen it, one could have seen it as, what is Buddha doing? Why is he, why is he putting a flower between me uh, and him, between the assembly and him in this silence? That's seeing the flower as a separation. Discursive mind kicks in. But 
Mahakasyapa's Buddha presented it, and Mahakasyapa saw it as a place to meet. And so the smile was, yes, I will meet you here. Just as that moment along the path, we met. We met with the frog as being our flower, our place. Meet me at Webster's. Meet me at the corner room. Meet me at Oan. Meet me at the, the corner of Beaver and College. Meet me here. Meet this is what we are doing here. We, this place is our flower. We are, through me, through all of these ancestors of transmitting, I wouldn't be here, Taishan wouldn't be here, none of you would be here without this transmission process. starting way back in endless time, but in our Buddha land with Buddha and Mahakasyapa, which is what we're celebrating. Deep gratitude for them creating the place, this place, this place, this Dharma, where we meet, where we can meet. You, and 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 me. Thank you for meeting me here.